Hello, this is Roger Channon, and welcome to the podcast. I hope everybody is doing well and staying healthy. We have a very exciting episode planned this afternoon. Joining me all the way from the Dominican Republic is Louise Musa from, I think, episode seven, I believe, Architecture in the Dominican. If you haven't listened to that one, you should definitely go listen, and he's one of the founders of A20 Architects. And then our main guest tonight is... Uh, Adam Rouse joining us from San Francisco, California, here to talk about Adlin Darling Design, a firm which is multidisciplinary. They are growing in fame constantly. I see their articles all over Dezine and Arc Daily, and they do a lot of residential and commercial work, and I believe they're also into furniture design. So welcome, Adam and Louise. Thanks for joining. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us. So let's get into it. Let's start with you guys, Adam and Louise. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourselves and your background and how you ended up uh, working for Aidlin Darling Design. Of course. Uh, so I am originally uh, from Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, my parents still still live there. Um, uh, went to the University of Cincinnati, um, grad undergrad and, and graduate program. Um, I was always uh, interested in design of some type, architecture, um, product design, uh, graphic design uh, at an early age, always sketching, drawing. Um, kind of the architecture part was more sort of fantasy houses and floor plans that would, I thought, never be built. Um, and then building kind of furniture for our bedrooms, things like that, um, that, that we did when we were growing up because our, our dad had a wood shop in the basement. So luckily we still have all our digits after all of that. And then, uh, yeah, so starting architecture school, I actually didn't really understand architecture uh, with a capital A until starting at um, University of Cincinnati and being exposed, obviously, to the, the canon of architecture of Corbusier and um, Kahn and, and all of the, uh, the wonderful structures that, you know, were presented to you, even the art history of, of you know, the, the history of architecture. Um, so that really opened up my eyes and it was, it was a wonderful experience, uh, even through grad school. Um, and then, uh, after grad school, uh, with the internship program, I did my, most of my internships on the East coast in Washington, DC, and then New York city. Um, so after that, I moved back to New York city after grad school, uh, actually after having done some, some freelance work with Terry Bowling, who was a professor at the university still, and also Michael McIntyre. Uh, for a small time there after after graduation. Uh, so in New York City, I uh, got to work on some smaller boutique uh, projects, uh, which was a great experience, but I also wanted to uh, build things, for lack of a, of a better word. So I was working more at a paper architecture type of, type of office with very grand designs, beautiful designs, um, but in the end, they weren't getting um, built. And so my, my main interest in architecture in the beginning was to uh, get to be on the job site and see the materiality and uh, understand how buildings get put together uh, as part of uh, integral to the process of, of architecture, uh, which is something that we learned uh, a lot in, in building tectonics with uh, Terry at the helm there at, at the university. Um, so in, in looking to move to the West Coast, I had family out here in San Francisco uh, after there was a, a bit of a lull in the office in New York City, it was a good time to transition. Uh, so then as I was uh, 
researching offices out in San Francisco. Again, speaking with Terry Bowling, he recommended I contact Joshua Adlin and uh, David Darling, who are also University of Cincinnati uh, graduates, and I believe a class just below Terry, who also went to the university. Um, and, and as it had it, serendipitously, we, we met up, hit it off. Uh, they had a new project uh, just come into the office, a wonderful residential remodel in, in San Francisco, which is very eclectic and wonderful in the ability to do indoor-outdoor spaces and also has a, has a good history of modern architecture, uh, in, including the sort of everybody thinks of San Francisco as the Bay Window. Uh, there is it's in the surrounding areas there's a great uh, lineage of, of uh, modern residential architects uh, to be sure so that's how i ended up here 14 years ago um this past april and we've been been loving it ever since very cool wow do you have adam any before we jump into the Adeline darling era of your life hmm. do you have any cool memories from back then in school or even when you were working for Terry. Sure. Um, it was, yeah, it was, it was a great experience at, at Cincinnati, obviously, because of the internship program, but also because of uh, kind of the design build component that, that started uh, to be developed with, with Terry at the helm again. Um, back in, now, now I'm dating myself, I have to think, 2000. So my undergraduate was 98 to 2000. To and then graduate 2002-2004. And so I uh, took a handful of design build type work uh, classes with Terry. And so building mock-ups and large scale kind of architectural tectonic objects down in the shop and then bringing them up to the old DAP or the old uh, GAA part of the building, the brick and glass and like hanging them in the hallways and seeing how light played on them and, and working at it a full scale materiality was, was quite intriguing. Um, and then you, so you had that end, that, that pole of how you approach architecture. And then you had the other pole of the Eisenman building that you were partially living in, depending on um, going, going over to that, which was a very, you know, sort of formal architecture in, in plan and elevation uh, and then the resulting spaces were the, the things that you that you lived in based on the algorithm or the way that they progressed the design iterations. Um, and obviously it was rendered in carpet and board and reveals, large reveals, small reveals. So you had your primary, secondary, tertiary things starting to show up in a little bit more subtle ways, paint colors, obviously. Um, and so you could really, and in some people, I mean, there's obviously a, a large array of opinion of like and dislike for the building. Um, but I think in general, it was amazing to have all of these different styles that you moved through with the, uh, the Eisenman addition. You know, you moved into more of the modernist DAA building where the old studios were and the Eisenman building and then obviously all the new architecture being built on campus. So to to speak to your point, Luis, in a long winded way, the the <laughs> the the, um, the access to many different architectural styles mm -hmm. on the campus was a great memory because you could go see um, a brutalist building, uh, the Crosley Tower right outside. Uh, you could see a deconstructivist type of building, work in it, 
live in it, the Eisman building, some of the more modernist buildings, and then even some of the postmodern, the Michael Graves. And unfortunately, the, the Morphosis building was done after I had left. So not only did I not get to enjoy the gym and facilities, I didn't get to see the, the building. I came back afterwards to check it out. But even the Henning Larson, I believe, just opened a building yeah, there yeah. as well. The business school. I've seen photos of, and now next time in Cincinnati, I got to take another tour of the campus. And even Hargrave's doing the landscape. I mean, you had such a palimpsest of buildings across the whole campus in an urban setting. It's kind of an amazing way to uh, just physically walk up to something and decide and analyze why you like or dislike it. Um, so I think that was that was a, a great memory of going to university versus, say, going to a, another generic, let's say, university. I don't know a name, but uh, that's, you know, more neo-colonial buildings across the whole campus. You know, that's that's telling you one style that's um, and then you're researching other styles and visiting projects on, on your own time or in different classes. But to have <laughs> but to have basically an architectural canon outside of your your classroom door within walking distance um, was pretty amazing. Well, this is such a nostalgic way to put in eloquent words, all the feelings I had for the university. Thank you, Adam. <laughs> oh, of course. Very cool. One thing I you talked about is, is kind of working with tools and mm -hmm. seeking a firm that was design, build, and very hands-on in a sense, and even in the construction process. And that's one thing mm -hmm. I've really enjoyed about the education at the University of Cincinnati. How do you think that helped you? I mean, now working with Aidlin Darling, a firm that seems very hands-on and design build mm -hmm. in that sense as well, working with tools and right, uh, a, a great question. And I don't see the the office of Aidlin Darling that the leaf didn't fall far from the tree, or the apple didn't fall far from the tree. I'm not sure the exact saying, but our office is a product of that ethos that the university, the foundation of the program. Um, even when David and Joshua went to the university, you know, a decade prior, uh, when Terry was there as well, the, the act of making was very strong. So getting familiar with your table saws, your band saws, making models um, was a huge part of it, making larger scale mock-ups even, you know, that translated directly to Inland Darling in that the studio felt very much like a large open kind of studio that you would have uh, at the university. Our office um, felt that way. And they had a, a built-in wood shop. So your table saws, your band saws, uh, planers, sanders, everything, so that you could make your models, you can make mock-ups, you can see what it what a you know a slat pattern actually looks like to scale. Um, you can, you know, you could basically do the same things that you were doing in school in, in the design build type of uh, studio with, with Terry et al. Um, and you're doing it in the profession and you're showing this to clients and you're getting the scale and proportion correct uh, versus um, just relying on your intuition and obviously the knowledge that you, you gain from doing plan sections, elevations of scale, proportion, et cetera. You know, things can, can read very differently when they're brought from a, a fine scale to a large scale uh, and the, how that affects the body, the presence, whether it's high up on a building, maybe the aggregate or the grain needs to be larger because it doesn't read as well. 
you know, maybe it needs to be smaller because you it's in the entryway and you can see it and feel it and you want it to be a little bit more rough texture than the one, you know, higher up that you visually engage, but you never physically engage. So those are the types of nuances that really start to make a project sing uh, past the initial formalism. That's a great point. And I think there's right now such a push in the architectural world. Let's get into VR. Let's get mm -hmm. really high tech and so they, they get away from model building and experimenting in that sense. And I think there's such a disadvantage in not taking a step back and looking at the basics and do exactly what you just said. So I, I really applaud you guys for that. Thank you. So, yeah, we make it a, sorry. Go. No, no, it's okay. Go ahead. I was going to say that we, we do make a point in the office to try to explain because we, you know, we're product of the architecture profession. So we need to do the 3D modeling to understand form, to start creating BIM models, to explain it to contractors and to build it. But we always start with drawings, hand drawings, physical models still. You're, you're developing them on the computer as well. But there's a bit, uh, a bit lost in the sort of the beauty of the process if you kind of start solely in the computer, at least in our sort of approach. Um, and then we've, we've certainly tried to stay away. We, we don't have VR in the office, um, but just the, the act of, of picking up a physical model that's been built by hand and looking into it and rotating around it gives you so much more information more quickly. And even the client to a certain degree uh, versus sort of a walkthrough of a, of a 3D model that's maybe not completely developed. So it feels more plasticky or neutral. Mm -hmm. um, I know in starting my own business, if I give a client something too complete in the computer, like a 3D model, if I hook them up to VR and I show them the complete project, I'm setting myself up as an, a designer for, for them to get disappointed thinking that, you know, this mm. is exactly how it's going to look where do mm -hmm. model building and you see that you see it on a small scale and you know, it's not exactly going to look like that. You're, you're, you, you kind of change the expectation. I, I feel like, I don't know if you agree with that, but thought I, I would agree. That. Yeah. And that's a, to that point that the VR or, or showing a kind of a 3d walkthrough is it's, sort of a double-edged sword and a bit of a slippery slope you know it's helpful for them to understand volumes and ideas but then it can become it can look too finite and then they're they're thinking that oh this is what i'm getting or oh is it is it done yet um is this what we're getting and it's like no this is more of the concept and so we like to keep it a little bit more loose and i guess physical in regard to drawings and models in the beginning before we start filling in those blanks to let their mind fill in the blanks, I guess, in the beginning about how they think it will feel. Uh, and obviously we, we, we hope to um, project what it would feel like to them before we get into more of the uh, physical modeling, or I'm sorry, the digital modeling later on where you get more intricate and you get more information, I guess, where it would make sense to start getting in and seeing what some of the materiality and interiors of the spaces feel like. But we usually always have an analog of wood, uh, you know, concrete, steel, glass, whatever's in the project um, on the table. 
so that you can associate this physical analog material with what you're seeing digitally on the screen, you know, with the caveat saying that obviously in real life, you know, this will feel more like this, this piece of concrete on the table. And then also suggesting that these clients visit previous projects of ours, obviously having built up um, a portfolio that is able to be visited, um, we suggest seeing things in, in person, if, if at all possible, even if it's not one of our projects. Back at your point, Adam, about that beauty of, of the process and filling in the blanks, I think it's a beautiful thing that you guys do very well is that you incorporate the client and you make them feel as a collaborator, a design insight. So along mm -hmm. the process, the client starts feeling like it's they as well are designing the place. Mm -hmm. So maybe what Roger is saying about the VR could fit eventually later on in the process, but not in the early stages. I mean, it might be not something to discard immediately, but mm -hmm. maybe it could find a place for specific moments Sure. Yeah, and again, we're uh, our our office is smaller. We work on you know a large amount of residential. We're working on some commercial projects. For example, a project in um, on the University of Virginia's campus, a contemplative arts center, which is much larger project has a big board, donors, things that are you know people need to be wowed or understand what the the larger space feels like and even to a point of animations that um, need to be created for fundraising and things like that to explain this building uh, prior to it to it being built so i've seen it uh, work very nicely um, uh, in, in instances with larger projects um, and in uh, I've had some friends in, in the industry that are work on larger um, office building or even kind of TIs where you where you walk the client through the space um, with I believe it's Revit and Enscape, which is actually um, becoming uh, quite realistic, or it starts to feel more like the space because you know it's, it's interesting if if you have the ability to compare. Um, a real space that you're in and then go back and to the VR model or to another model and, and try to and walk through it and see how you feel in regard to does the space feel like it did or it does in this VR presentation. That's a great um, point. And, and one, one trick that I've learned in present, presenting to clients is, and this is sort of a, a little tip trick, is making sure your focal length that you're viewing it the lens through is that of the human eye i think we you could get into a little bit of trouble especially with and this is more residential clients um you can get into a bit of trouble if you use a wider uh, view angle as you're walking through the house just so you can see more but then obviously the space is appears wider, more stretched out, just because you're trying to see more. It's like putting a 17 millimeter lens on your camera versus a 50 millimeter lens. Mm -hmm. And so in the walkthroughs, using the equivalency of the human eye around 50 millimeter uh, for your focal length setting has, at least in my um, kind of experience, 
made the architecture on the screen feel like it does when you're moving through it in, in real life. Adam is also a photographer, so okay, I'm going to trust him on this one. <laughs> no, that's a great point. That makes sense, too. That does. Do you guys want to uh, step back from this conversation a little bit and do want to talk a little bit about the history of how Adlin Darling Design became a firm? Sure, of course. Um, and obviously, this is being told through the lens of, of um, what was told to me or what I know. Um, but back in, I believe, 1997 is when the firm was, um, I guess, christened. But prior to that, both Joshua Adlin and David Darling had both moved to San Francisco independently. They had known each other in school um, as, you know, they, they, were, they were friends, but not sort of the, the people that, uh, you know, kept in touch all the time. And so they crossed paths when they were in San Francisco and they, they hit it off again. And just about their ethos of, of architecture, like experiencing it through the five senses, the touch, the feel, the smell, all of those sort of things that you, you feel within a, within a space um, that they weren't necessarily seeing in some of the, the things that they were, they were work, working on or, or working at. And so one project came up for David Darling uh, for a client uh, in a remodel in the city, and they you know, struck it off very well. Uh, and then the next project was you know, on our website, if you would go to it. Uh, it is the large vineyard estate um, that was up in Sonoma. And that was essentially the project that, that started the, the office proper. And um, Joshua had been working on furniture design in his spare time as well. He's a furniture designer. Uh, so all of those uh, all of those aspects that they were interested in, basically a project came into the to their laps where they formed the office around um, that they could start to explore that. Um, and that's how the office started and has grown ever since. So, Adam, you mentioned that uh, your career at the University of Cincinnati ended up around 2002. So, Aitlin Darling Design was pretty new at the time. How was it walking up to Joshua Aitlin and David Darling back then? Uh, how was the interview process? How did, how mm -hmm. did they agree to, to have you on board? And, uh, and why were you interested in, in their work back then? Mm -hmm. um, again, when I had moved out... From, from New York, uh, I was doing more of the uh, kind of conceptual architecture and I wanted something physical, real, that you could you know, sink your teeth into to make mock-ups and kind of get back to the, the enjoyment that I had at, at the university doing, doing the same thing. Um, and again, I guess this was in 2006 is when I started working for them. Um, the, uh, you know, I, I looked them up and they said, uh, come on by. So I think there were maybe eight or 10 people at that point. And, uh, and then Joshua and David. And I came in and I, I think I met with Josh first. Um, and again, we just hit it off. Um, the, the wood shop, the, the ethos of what they were doing, walking through the, the studio with all of the maquettes and models on the shelves, the material samples. It was everything that I was kind of uh, pining for yeah. um to get off 
uh, get off the computer a bit and, in, and into the physical world. But I also wanted to merge the two. So using the digital fabrication, but in a, in a material um, centric way. And, and they, um, they love the idea of that and, and, and encourage exploration into that with the, with the, um, you know, the final point being, you know, it has to, it has to have sort of a gravitas or, or feeling of, of that sort of je ne sais quoi of what makes a, a project feel wonderful. Like sometimes you can't put your finger on it, but a lot of the times it's, it's embedded in one of the five senses that aren't necessarily visual. And so, you know, just this conversation that we're having now, what I was just saying, we were having in our interview was very laid back. Um, and they said, we, you know, love to have you on, we have a project coming in. If it, if it, you know, lands and we'd love to have you join the team. Um, and that's, that's basically how it started. It just felt, uh, a hundred percent right walking in the door. That's so cool. And that you started with them so early on in their career, uh, what were some of the initial challenges that they faced w- when starting a practice and being so new, especially in San Francisco, which I assume is a very competitive architecture market? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think the main thing that they they set forth in the very beginning was not to grow big. And I think there's uh, obviously a draw to grow bigger and expand expand the office and get more projects. Um, but they wanted to stay small so that they could focus on the craft and detail of each project with basically that being the physical portfolio of the work that represents the office's um, ethos and craft for the next client. And so having good client relationships and a wonderful built project and product and having that as a reference to send new clients to walk through the house, nothing beats walking through a house um, that has been built to tell uh, the story of, of what you propose to give a new client. Um, obviously, great photography is one way to experience it. Um, but physically being there and seeing and feeling and opening doors and feeling the materiality uh is there's no way around that being the best way to do it. So with that first project and the focus of that project and a great client relationship afterwards, you know, that being your, again, your, your physical 3D portfolio, sending new clients there, walking them through it, um, there's no question left to the imagination of what, what kind of product is um, going to be given to them. Obviously, there's a tier of price points so that that project represents a certain price point. And then you can discuss price points lower than that, price points higher than that, but it gives a good um, physicality to a, a price point and where it could go. And certainly the volumes and the architecture and all of these things. So all of which is to say, you need the project built first to really hit the ground running. And they kind of, again, launched the, launched the firm on a, on a very good first note. So, Adam, you mentioned something about uh, them wanting to keep the firm small. I know that that's still kind of the case. So could you tell us a little bit about why do you want to do that? Mm-hmm. So the Josh 
and Dave both want to be integrally integrally involved and on the on the pulse of every project. Um, and so, I, as being the two partners, and generally they when a project comes in the office, one of the two partners takes the lead, the other being the critic, and and the whole office being the critic. But usually that's the way it's set up. So that the client interactions, all of the the contracts and the the day to day stuff is um, the one partner, and then obviously the project architect, project manager, and the, and the team kind of built around that, and then the sort of open critique within the office. But they found that um, kind of the the threshold of around you know fifteen twenty or so max mm-hmm. was a good percentage of employees or uh, uh, people in the studio to run the projects that they both could keep, you know, a a good finger on the pulse and not um, feel like they were losing the ability to, to really get deep in each project. You get a little further than that. Obviously you you grow an office, you have more staff that has a payroll and you need to start bringing in more projects to hit that payroll. And then it starts to escalate. Right. So they, they found that sweet spot was around 15 to 20. And it can it can fluctuate depending on the type of projects like the, the larger institutional projects can handle three to four people, maybe five people at, at the heat of the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but the residential projects usually are a partner, a project architect PM, and then a handful of uh, team members, depending on how big or how complex uh, the project would be, but the other unique thing is the project architect, project manager goes from pre-design, schematic design, et cetera, all the way through construction administration to the end. So they are the, the vein that runs through the whole thing of knowledge. So it's embedded knowledge throughout the whole thing, which I think is a very successful way to execute a project from beginning to end. Uh, in, in the highest level of accuracy and craft as, as possible. So you would say that the firm structure is kind of organized in, in somehow st- small studios that run a project and that small team takes the whole process. Is, is that how it works? Correct. Okay. Yeah. And generally, again, so the, the project architects managers, um, the other thing that that we did start to do was create a little bit more of a a structure of the people that had been there longer, less less in the case of we wanted to do it. For example, we have now um, the partners. We have uh, three principals and two senior associates, one of which I I am, and it's more and it's less of a kind of a hierarchical uh, setup. It was actually done because of just the nature of, of trying to win projects more in the public and commercial and institutional worlds, um, mm-hmm. almost as a, a, a way of defining who these people are that are on your, um, that are on your proposal. And we found that as, as much as we wanted to keep a little bit more, uh, keep it a little bit more egalitarian, um, again, open, open studio, no hierarchy, the sort of the outside world wanted some type of understanding of who these people people were <laughs> yeah um, but in the end it's it's you know the, the best idea floats to the top and is listened to by by everybody on the team but 
as a project architect, project manager, I'm, I would be obviously running more of the the budget, the, the contracts, the consultants, et cetera. Um, just having more experience in the office than somebody with two or three or four years that would be obviously on the design team and doing more of the production, but we all still produce. I mean, I, I still do the drawings. I still do SketchUp, um, Rhino. Uh, we're still trying to figure out a good platform for uh, BIM models just because we're running Max. Um, so it might be ArchiCAD, et cetera, but that certainly is someplace the industry has gone is going, has gone, uh, that we need to address. Uh, but that's sort of how uh, the office operates. And again, once you get past about 20 people, mm-hmm. you know, the structure that we have set up um, starts to get a bit thin in regard to the, uh, the, the bandwidth of, of the partners keeping, you know, keeping the ability to uh, be involved in each project Interesting. So you guys have grown to the point where you're a very well-known firm, and I'm sure you have people coming from all over looking for you guys to build their house or do their project. Mm. I, I'm curious, at that point, with that kind of um, fame, how, how do you manage your client budget expectations? And if you get somebody coming to you and they want to build a house, I mean, how do you make sure that it's the right match for mm-hmm. you and the client? Uh, it's a it's a great question. Um, budget aside, in in the early part, there's you know Josh and and Dave have a set of kind of questions that they ask the client that aren't about necessarily uh, their again their their budget and more of the the technical things. But what art they like? What do they like to do in their spare time? How do they like to live? Um, where do they want to live? things like that to, to, to get a feel of, um, you know, if our architectural approach marries well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously that the, the budget part and how big of a house or how big of a project they're interested in doing versus their budget expectation, depending, and again, California and San Francisco in particular is off the charts in regard to price per square foot. So it's such a macro uh, economy that I'm not even going to tell you the price per square foot that you know we're seeing in this in this economy. COVID aside, which is making things a little bit e- even more wonky, hmm. but it's you know building even in New York City is less expensive. Um, or even if you were to do something in the desert in Arizona, like we did a project in the desert um, down outside of Palm Springs. And even there, there was a 75% reduction in costs just because of being out of the Bay Area proper. Um, so it's it's very interesting. You have to take a lot of different um, metrics to understand if their project is feasible within what their expectation is for budget and scope, the area it's in. And then obviously, if it's if it's a good fit for the ethos of, of what we hope to provide for them and what they're looking for. I can't, yeah, I can't imagine building out there. That sounds so expensive. Mm-hmm. And I have more of an appreciation too, after starting my own business and uh, just they're forming an LLC in California. It's like $800 a year and just 
to mm-hmm. own, have an LLC and there's all these taxes and things that we don't have here in Cincinnati. And I just cannot imagine how difficult it is to start a firm and have it be that successful out there. So congratulations to all of you guys. That's awesome. No, thank you. Yeah, it's definitely uh, it's definitely been escalating and more difficult to sort of make make the kind of ends meet. Um, I mean, we've been very lucky in that respect and having great clients and projects keep moving forward. But but like you said, it's all of these different costs. And you say eight hundred dollars for an LLC, and that doesn't phase me at all because I'm yeah. thinking in in different um, different levels of of um, you know the the spreadsheet. Um, it's almost like, I guess I can, I, I've explained this to some people before, but coming from Ohio, knowing what building costs were there, and then coming to California, even New York and East Coast, and then coming to California 14 years ago, it was still a dramatic uptick. And it became so kind of expensive in my mind that I had to think of it abstractly as almost um, as almost percentages of what I had known or what I had expected. So, you know, you take the numbers that you're getting and, and seeing, and then you sort of reduce it by a certain amount to make it a little bit more understandable or approachable. And at least in my mindset coming from back East. So, I mean, that's a very good question and it's not a straightforward one. If somebody were to say, come, come to us um, in Minnesota or Montana with a big ranch and want to do some type of, of house out there, we would have to do research on, on, one quality builders or people that could build something out there that um, would meet our, our standards and what their kind of cost per square foot range is, and then understand how big the people want to build the houses, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a lot of like due diligence and research up front. If you get set outside of the market that we're in here in San Francisco, which even in and of itself is fluctuating quite rapidly. Hmm. So Adam, um, Let's let's say that you meet with the client, you evaluate the project, and you decided that you're going to take it on. Um, mm-hmm. What would be the next step? I mean, how's your design process? How do you get it from point A to point Z? And is mm-hmm. it straightforward? Does it depend? Uh, how is the team collaboration? Is this uh, hierarchical scheme where the principal sketches mm-hmm. something and pass it down? Or is it a mm-hmm. collaboration? How, how does it work after you get the, the project? Uh, a great question. Um, and the, the, the idea is that it's not hierarchical in regard to uh, like the, the partner does a sketch on an napkin, Frank Gehry style, hands it off and has the team build it. Boom. Um, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> definitely not like that. And we would slap their hands if, if we, they did that and they know that we would. Um, <laughs> but uh, to that point, a lot of our projects start with the project team or the core project team that we know is going to be on the project going and visiting the site, you know, digesting all of the program information, scope information, and then each person going off and doing their own parties, their own thoughts, their own sketches for however long that needs to happen. And then everybody coming together in the studio and basically presenting their ideas and their approach of the work from the principal to the partners, to the project managers and the project team. You know, the the designer that's on the project does the same process. And we look at all of the information and all of the designs and critique it for the strongest concept and strongest point. And that's what 
uh, comes to the surface. And maybe there are two or three good approaches. Um, and obviously, we we uh, winnow it down to the the strong concepts uh, that that hold water, and then you present it to the client, and then that's when you start to get the the dialogue, the the back and forth of what they like, what they dislike, um, and then the the project starts to move forward in that respect. And then you you get to a point where you've you've brought it down to maybe one concept. There could even be two concepts, and then you like to get in. A general contractor or or somebody or a price estimator to start putting this out into the current market and see what price per square foot it is what range you're in to, to the best of the market's ability um, again this past covid bump has made everything just kind of crazy so in the bay area what used to be very what was very high prices now has come into this time we're in now and nobody really, subcontractors, everybody really have no idea what's going to happen mm-hmm. in regard to protocols, who can be on site. And so numbers are all over the place. You know, you get a lot of interference. So, you know, we're getting numbers back that are higher, some are lower. You could suggest, oh, okay, that the numbers will be lower because people are hungry for work because a lot of, you know, projects have stopped. But then again, projects could come back more expensive because there's much more uh, logistics in, in having a protected site. Um, so that sidebar aside, you, you get into schematic design and you, you end, up on a pro, end up on a plan or a concept that everybody agrees upon. And this is sort of an all, this is a buy-in from the client as well. Like we're all happy to move forward. We all take responsibility for the project to get where it has gotten. And then you move forward in design development and get it to uh, some more get consultants on board, you know, your civil engineers, your structural engineers. Sometimes the structural engineers actually come in earlier in the schematic design process to get some, um, you know, get some reality to can levers, overhangs, what we want to do, because it becomes a collaboration with your consultants as well. Um, you know, sustainability consultants, um, all of those type of things. So they generally are onboarded, certainly after schematic design into design development depending on how fast the project wants to, to go or the client's interested in moving. Um, you know, that's, as Luis knows, design development can last for many years. Um, so then you get to a point where you can actually put some really hard numbers to structural details, uh, plans, elevations, consultant drawings, et cetera. Uh, and then that's when you get sort of your first real look at, at what a contractor actually puts a price to in the, in the environment that you're in um, uh, budget wise, what the industry is showing. And then you move forward from there and then you do your construction documents, submit your permits, depending on where you are. I mean, also the jurisdictions out here are kind of ridiculous. Um, San Francisco is very hard to get things built in, in a, in a timely manner. You have to go through a lot of different uh, processes um, but for example, down in, down in Palm Desert, up in the mountains, you know, there was, there was no real permit or a planning submission process for, for the neighborhood. So it went very smoothly where San Francisco can take two years to get through the planning process. Wow. Um, you know, wow. so it's, 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 it's very difficult and expensive to build in the city. 
you know, you get outside the city, it becomes something different entirely. So the, the projects become very like yo-yos. Um, you know, some projects can be a very short string and you can get things done much more quickly, or it could go from something very short seemingly to getting a lot of pushback from neighborhood groups in the city. And then, then it pushes back, you know, many, many months. Um, so again, it's, it's very project specific, I guess, how long that's uh, DD into CD period goes. And then obviously construction administration, you, you build the thing. Um, and that can, it, you know, that fluctuates depending on what, whether it's a residential project, a restaurant, which we've done a handful of, an institutional project, a public project, et cetera, et cetera. Does the client project impact the process at all, or is that a minor thing at the level of your practice? It does. It's, it, I think it always does. Um, you know, we're still in that area where obviously we, we have that, that collective dialogue with the client of what, what is valuable to them. You know, if bronze, uh, bronze articulated doors and wood cabinets and all of these bespoke things, they don't find the value in, they want to put that money in more volume or more space. Mm -hmm. And certainly you listen to that in the beginning. Uh, so that's, that's the type of kind of guest conversation you have in the beginning. And, and the hope is that, you know, as the project proceeds, you keep going back to that base, um, base idea of what is of value to them because the Bay area has billionaires, you know, mm -hmm. and, and they certainly could, could buy, I mean, they become billionaires, um, because they have been smart with their money, obviously. So they don't want to make a, a bad investment, um, Right. But, you know, technically you could afford anything, but it becomes of value, you know, what they feel the most uh, interested in. You know, you could say, oh, I just like a very simple architecture, but the the hardware, the things that you touch, I really want to be very nice because those are the things you touch all the time. Um, the things you interact with. So like the faucets, the hardware, et cetera. Right. Um, or you can you can go the opposite way and and make some people love and have the ability to dial in every single cabinet and drawer to to their liking. You know, you can kind of toggle between toggle between the two. Um, so it really depends on the client. But you get that you get that up front. With, with your initial conversations and understand their values versus budgets and um, to move forward. One of the questions me and Louise had on, on our list here was where do you see your firm going in the couple of years? Obviously you said that you, you want to stay smaller and um, you know, be able to stay hands-on if you're, if you're one of the partners of the firm, but do you have goals or things that you hope to accomplish in the coming years for Aidlin Darling? I think one one kind of decided effort that was made um, maybe gosh, ten years ago was to diversify our project portfolio, not only just as a business um, in a business sense, you know, just not putting all of your eggs in the residential basket, and let's say you know things aren't great for the residential industry, and then your firm atrophies and has to lay off. 
but getting into uh, restaurants, again, public work, commercial work, institutional work. Um, so diversifying in that respect, but also in, in the respect of, of designing beautiful exper experiential things within all of those typologies. Um, and so that I think has always been on the mind of Joshua and David in, in kind of um, uh, directing the office so that we do have commercial projects in the office, you know, a restaurant in the office, along with, with residential. So I think in regard to moving forward or projecting the office into the future, it would be keeping a healthy balance, if possible, if the market allows, of different typologies of projects um, that these ideas can be explored through and be uh, enjoyed by uh, a larger um, segment of, uh, of people. Now, obviously, residential projects are generally enjoyed by the clients and their friends and things like that. But for example, like architecture students um, would have a hard time accessing these private houses. Whereas if you had a public restaurant or a public uh, project, um, it can be enjoyed by more people. So I think bringing up the balance of uh, kind of residential in our uh, in our hoppers, as long as, uh, as well as public projects, because we also feel that it's um, good to be obviously developing the community that we're living in. So public and even pro bono projects. So uh, we've been doing a handful of pro bono projects when the opportunity arises and cultural projects that have much lower um, budgets, but we can help augment by profits from um, uh, the other projects in the office, if that makes sense. Okay, so that's part of your marketing scheme, I see. Uh, and, and I was gonna ask you about that too. So how do you approach marketing the firm, getting awards, getting publications, getting all the fame that Roger is praising uh, during the interview, getting more <laughs> projects. So it's, yeah, how does that work? After you finish a project, do you just go to a magazine and publish it? How does that work? Uh, a good question. I think a lot of our marketing in the beginning was very organic. A lot of it was word of mouth, um, certainly in the residential world, because the residential clients aren't necessarily looking at Arc Record and Architect Magazine and things like that. Those are more industry um, magazines, which are, which are great in recognizing great architecture. So we submit to awards programs, to um, you know the AIA awards in the in the you know the state, national, city, etc. Um, submit to magazines, and then it becomes a question marketing-wise of of what eyes would you like to see it. Like, whom are you trying to uh, collaborate with as a client? So that's when you start to think of, okay, do we approach trying to have this house published in Dwell, which has a larger readership of people that may be interested in uh, coming to the website, thinking they want a house, looking us up, and then basically starting that first process. And then obviously that's when the process I spoke about before kind of starts. Um, in regard to commercial institutional cultural projects, there was a decided shift to go after more um, RFPs. 
that were publicly um, publicly published, I guess. And so okay. Rosalind Cole in our office, who used to work for a office in the in the city here that did larger institutional commercial cultural projects, kind of spearheaded that. Um, which is where you start to get, we, we kind of came across the Stanford Windover Center um, that we completed. And that was an invited competition just because you started put we put, started putting our name out there and feelers out there that we were interested and capable of doing that work. Um, and it's just the effort to start getting your name out there and, and start signing up for proposals that are available. Um, mm -hmm for it's certainly in the public realm you can you can submit proposals but also speaking with some people that are on boards like clients are generally on some some type of board um and so if they're on a cultural board in the city a cultural arts board you know a lot of the clients are in the arts you just start getting it out there that that is something that um Aitlin Darling is able to do. And obviously, what you know, it's it's hard once before you have done one of those projects. Once you've done a project, obviously you can work yourself with that project. Uh, but you right. kind of do the sort of the saddle projects, like the, the Windover Center is a great saddle project, so to speak, in that it's very intimate, material-based, sort of um, a little bit more residential in scale. I mean, it still has a uh, sort of an arts cultural gravitas to it. But it's a good transition project. It's you know it's very easy to translate those ideas that we've developed um, early on in the residential field into the cultural field, and then similarly you start to scale up and scale up, and now you're at the project size, our biggest project as uh, uh, the UVA Contemplative Arts Center, which is taking those ideas and scaling them, but still trying to keep the intimacy materiality uh, that uh, that make the building live. And then there was another project we just completed that was a, a high school, a charter high school. So creating uh, creative environments for high school students and trying to um, open up their minds to the possibilities of architecture and space earlier on in their education. And so you have the ability, and that was a, a, a public RFP that we submitted for. So we, we went after those. Yeah, I would like to ask you, Adam, uh, where do you see the firm going in the coming years? Do you, do you think, I mean, based on what I've been listening, uh, you're very, very keen on keeping your ethos and the way of approaching architecture. So do you think that Aiden Darling is gonna stay a mid-sized firm, small firm, want to mm -hmm. pursue more public work perhaps, but is that going to imply it's going to grow? Mm -hmm. how, how do you see the future of the firm? I feel like um, the, the future is, is still very much structured the same way that our office is structured now with not growing past the sort of the mid-sized um, uh, mid uh, office population, I guess 20, about 20 people. But I believe that the balance of projects, having more of the cultural, institutional, public projects balance out the residential work, because that is um, always will be in our office, um, to a point where it could be 50-50, if not 60-40 on the other typologies versus residential. Mm -hmm. 
um, again, so that you can explore these, these ideas within different typologies, within different scales, um, but not to a point I don't think you'll see Aitlin Darling doing a skyscraper anytime soon. Um, <laughs> but to the to scale of something like Henning Larson did at the university, you know, that's a very similar scale and typology of what we're doing at the University of Virginia for the Contemplative um, Sciences Center. Right. One of our biggest audiences is students and young professionals just getting started out there starting their careers and trying to find a, a place to work. Do you have any advice that you would like to share to the, to our general audience? Of course. Um, I mean, the one thing that I loved about the University of Cincinnati was is that it was in a school with other disciplines, obviously DAAP, um, the design, interior design, um, fashion design, industrial design, graphic design, um, planning. I would recommend, if possible, take as many electives, um, immerse yourselves in as many of those other disciplines as possible. Learn more of the graphic design. Obviously, you're, we become uh, very versed in that in our architectural profession just because of using those programs to create presentations, to do the renderings. I mean, product design to a certain degree, you're, you're doing uh, furniture making classes, if you can get to that scale. Kind of become um, and I don't want to say generalist in a, in a pejorative sense, because I don't think it is, but try not to get um, to become a specialist in one thing, kind of cast a wide net in all of these different design professions so that you become more nimble in the job market. Um, certainly there's many different, many different architectural sized offices, approaches that you could go into from small residential offices to the SOMs, from commercial institutional focused offices to some office like our office, which tries to do a little bit of everything. Uh, but it helps in understanding many different approaches to design uh, so that you can be nimble within the larger workforce when you, when you graduate in our you know, in the world, the post-COVID world, um, it always helps to be able to shift your weight into something that's maybe a little bit more uh, graphic design-oriented or um, residential design-oriented or product design-oriented. There's so many different spurs of the architecture, architecture industry, at least in San Francisco, that architects have gone into um, photography. Like I've been into photography as well, or into product furniture um, design and creating businesses around that. There's a project or there's a, an office out here called Ohio Design, a guy from Cincinnati that has started a furniture business uh, that's, that's doing really well. I mean, there's not that big of a leap if in a design sense, good design is good design, no matter what um, profession it is. So I would say casting a wide net while you're at the university, whichever university you're at, into the other disciplines that are offered to you. Uh, so you can be uh, kind of fluent in a lot of those different languages. I think that's great advice. And I especially yeah, casting your net out wide. And I had like a friend, for example, 
and they really wanted to work at this firm. And the firm was like, no, no, we're not hiring. And he sends them an email. He's like, hey, by the way, I know how to do website design also, and I'm happy to help you with your website. And he got hired just by having that that second <laughs> skill there. So, I mean, that's yeah. a great example, and that's mm-hmm. such good advice, Adam. Thank you. Adam, what about for the young professionals starting out in a firm that they listen to you and they say, wow, I want to be a senior associate when I grow old. <laughs> what what advice would you give Who them? said that? <laughs> Myself, as an instance. I see, I see. Um, well, it, it came kind of organically to become a senior associate. Um, but I think a large part of, of kind of, I guess, um, climbing the ladder or just becoming a more of an integral part of whatever office you're in is by really caring about what you do, caring about what the office does. And it, it becomes a, um, it becomes this, this, the same mutual beneficial relationship. Um, you know, Aveland Darling was very communal and, and great com- camaraderie and you do a lot of extracurricular things. You, uh, um, you know, you just become an integral integral part of the office. Um, and I think if if the people that are in the hierarchy of the office see that and that you're embedded in in the betterment of and the uh, projection of where the office is going, I, mean, I think you can only only go up. I mean, obviously hard work is is there, but it's more of an attitude of of really enjoying what you're doing. Obviously, if you're in a position and you're miserable or you don't like what you're doing, um, that that body language or that feeling isn't going to make you maybe want to uh, elevate in, in that office. So maybe that's something that you evaluate and go to a place where you really feel, you know, I want to be here and get more involved in different aspects of the office, not just sort of the design team tasks, et cetera. You take on other aspects of the office, whether that's a research component for your office or, or doing things that are, are not above and beyond, but maybe not asked for, you know, you, it's something that's passionate to you and you want to bring that to the office or elevate that within the office uh, as potential. And I think, um, again, like the website or graphic design, you would like to work on, on the RFPs and help structure the, the uh, kind of the marketing collateral because you have, um, you really enjoy graphic layout and graphic design. You know that those are the type of things, the kind of the the veins that that pull off the main artery that certainly help the um, help you kind of root yourself in that office and then um, move forward from there. Wonderful, Adam. My heart is beating harder because of you. Thank you. <laughs> But then when you're the principal of the office, you're doing every single thing like that anyway. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious. I just started a business myself, and I have been shocked about how much paperwork, how little design I've actually gotten to do because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm constantly filing things. And it, with you guys, I mean, and um, Josh and David – do they kind of take an emphasis on, hey, we're, we're going to have other people do this. We want to be involved in mm. the design process. I'm kind of curious how that would go. Are they still, you know, taking a step back and just managing? That's a, that's a great question. And, and something I think that every small office or office starts 
to deal with is running a business is running a business no matter what you're doing. So if you're in architecture, if, if you're you know, selling sheet metal, if you're doing whatever else, if you're running a business, you're doing paperwork and you're doing the, the spreadsheets, there's no getting away from that. And that certainly does affect the time you have to design. Um, Dave and Josh basically started doing everything. Like Josh focused more on marketing and the RFPs where David uh, handled more of the financial end of, of the office. And we've gotten to a point where the revenues you know, obviously much higher. There's only so many hours in the day that you start to hire you know, accountants, bookkeepers, um, people that help you with some of the financial management, things like that, so that Dave and Josh can do the things that they love to do, which is why they started an office, which was design and build architecture. Um, but you know, it, it is, it is something to understand when you're starting your own office is that there's a lot of business, um, time that takes away from, you know, pencil to the paper. It is an unavoidable truth. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, there are some offices that I've, uh, been in certainly much larger offices where they have design or they have principles that are just financial principles. They don't design, they don't do anything but the budgets um, and the business side of things. And then you have design principles that all they do is get work, design, client interface. Um, not saying that's good or bad or one way or the other, it's just a way of addressing that exact issue of, of running a business, doing the books, making sure that, you know, payroll is paid, bringing in, you know, billing invoices, getting the consultants paid, everything like that, you know, doing your, doing your LLC licenses, making sure all of that's up to date, the taxes, you know, it is, it is another point actually, that's a good, good kind of segue from what recommendations we would have for people in school is along with those um, design disciplines, take some business classes. Heck and yeah. It, in addition to some of the things that are offered of, you know, intro to practice that you have, you know, a couple classes in architecture school, but really get into a, a intro to business class, intro to finance class at whatever university you're at. It will open your eyes to what a business actually means and into running it. I mean, I think that's probably the thing that was the, the, Obviously, because there's so much to learn in design and architecture, your your uh, you know um, your docket is full. So tr trying to slip one of those things in might be difficult, but it's very helpful, I think, if you have electives and have the ability to even take an intro to business or or finance or analytics class, something. Um, I think it will it will pay back in spades in the end if it is something you want to do starting in, starting your own office. That that's great advice. That is great advice. And oh, I yeah, get, get learn your financial stuff in the beginning. Get that out of the way, so then you can just focus on your career. And then, if you have a financial question or something that's come up, then you just know the answer right away, and you've already dealt with that. And I that is such good advice, Adam. Thank you. And, and, and so, I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, it's so easy to especially now we have credit cards and things to lose track of your personal finance. And I think in some ways the university does a poor job of helping you 
manage your finances. I mean, the first person I mm. talked to when I got to the University of Cincinnati was a PNC bank representative who wanted me to connect all my bank accounts. But it's just, it's easy to fall mm. down that slippery slope. So if you can get your personal finance figured out earlier as opposed to later, it'll it'll help you in the long run so much. Definitely. And to that point of, of kind of combining everything, it is always good in, in my um, sort of parallel track of obviously architecture and now architectural photography, I keep the two things separate in regard to income, obviously my paycheck from Adeline Darling, but any photography thing I keep as a separate, separate uh, piggy bank, so to speak. But obviously that's much larger when you own an office and sort of separating that from your personal finances uh, into your office finances. It just helps kind of keep clarity on, on where money is going, where money being spent, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I would lo love to encourage young people out there uh, to take a, take a stab at the AREs, uh, especially the practice management and project management stuff that they have. It's really great uh, to become a well-rounded architect. And it has a, an architect's point of view of financial situations and running a business situation. So it would be a great starting point. Definitely with Louise. Great advice. Well, Louise, do you have any more questions? I do not. I just want to thank Adam so much from the bottom of my heart, really. Yes, I enjoyed you, this so much. Yeah, this was amazing. I've learned so much from this, Adam, and uh, we'll have to have you on again soon. And a huge shout out to Louise for putting this together. Thanks. You're welcome. Yeah, yeah definitely. Thanks for reaching out, Louise and Roger. It was, uh, it's always nice to kind of give back to... Uh, Somebody that would hear this, you know, coming out of school and maybe kind of, uh, adjusting course uh, when they, they still have the ability to um, while they're in school to hopefully get the best out of their education and, and do what ultimately they want to do in, in the profession. Heck yeah. Well, thank you everybody for listening and I hope you guys are all staying healthy and we'll be back uh, hopefully soon with another podcast for you. So uh, Adam, Louise, thank you guys and have a great day. Bye. Thanks, Roger.